It was during World War II that the American GIs were making their way into the South Sea Islands. And they had come onto one island and were met by a native there. One of the natives came up to a soldier holding a Bible. You see, a missionary had been on that island years before and had shared the word of God. And this native islander thought that all Americans were Christians, even these soldiers. So he went up to the soldier and said, look, I've got the Bible that you brought to me. And he says, that wasn't me. He said, in fact, back in our country, we don't even read that book anymore. We've gotten beyond that. The islander said, well, it's a good thing we haven't gotten beyond it, because if we had, I would kill you and eat you right now. <laughs> and I think the GI probably praised God for the Bible. This book is amazingly valuable. And if we neglect it or ignore it, we do so to our peril. And that's the point that David is trying to make when he writes to us in Psalm 19. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. Last week we looked at the very first part of this psalm that tells us that God speaks to us in the skies. God speaks in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show forth the work of his hands. Day after day, they're speaking to us. And night after night, they're revealing him. And there is no place, no corner of this universe where his truth is not heard as revealed in creation. So God is speaking in the skies. That's the first five verses. And then the Bible tells us he is speaking to us in the scriptures. Verse 7 through 11. And this is the portion we'll look at today. This is what led Galileo to write in 1655 that God has two books. He speaks to us in the book of nature. And he speaks to us in the book of the scriptures. And these two books do not contradict. They cannot contradict because they have the same author who cannot lie. And so David begins to talk about how God speaks to us in the scriptures. And then finally, he tells us that God speaks to us in our very souls. Where we have to understand that we can easily be led astray into secret or presumptuous sins. And so the prayer is, Lord, keep me from going astray and make sure the meditation of my heart, the obedience of my soul is acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength. And my Redeemer. So God speaks to us in the heavens, natural revelation, the world above us, around us. He speaks to us in the scripture, the word before us. And he speaks to us in our soul, the witness within us. Creator, lawgiver, redeemer. And David deals with all of those things so beautifully and wonderfully. Now, when we get to Psalm 19 and it begins to talk about the scriptures, I think we have in a very concise way a monumental description, definition of the value, the nature, and benefit of the word of God. David takes his time to show how wonderfully broad, how deep, how amazingly beneficial it is for us to take in the word of God and make it our daily fare. This is the clearest summary in the Old Testament of the value of the Word of God. I mean, Psalm 119 has more verses that talk about the Bible, but nothing is so 
succinct and nothing gets to the heart of it better than Psalm 19. And the word of God needs to be valued before it's going to be read and believed. Now it seems like a rather abrupt change, doesn't it? David's talking about creation. And then, boom, he talks about the law of the Lord. But really, there's a a clear connection. In verse 5, you've got this discussion about the sun. And the sun that, that permeates the world with its light and heat. And David seems to be saying the very same thing about the scripture. It permeates the world with light and heat. Searching and cleansing and affecting everyone. It's like David looked up at the skies and someone said, David, what do you see when you look up at the skies? And he said, I see the word of God. I see the word of God spoken out there and it makes me think of the word of God spoken here. And he dives into the scriptures. By the way, the first few verses of Psalm 19 use the name for God, the Hebrew Elohim, which is the name of creator. But then seven times, beginning, I think it's in verse 6, maybe verse 7, the word Yahweh is used. That's the Hebrew name for the covenant keeper. So you've got the God of creation, and you've got the God of the covenant. And David is bringing them together, and yet showing how one is general revelation, and one is special revelation. Now, God will go on to speak not only through his word, through the prophets, but speak through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 says the best revelation comes through Jesus. But we can't know about that revelation without the word too. So we have the testimony of the Old Testament and the testimony of the New Testament joined together to give us this revealing of who God is, what he's like, what he desires for man. The best we can do is a brief summary this morning, but I hope it will whet your appetite to study in greater detail the Word of God. And even more important than that, to make the Word of God your daily food that you live on. Because Christians cannot live by bread alone. We've got to live, depend, feed on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, David is going to tell us six characteristics about the nature of the word and six benefits of the word of God. Since it's poetry, there'll be some overlapping. But he's trying to show us, again, how broad of a catalog there is of the characteristics and the benefits of the precious word of God. There are two found in each verse, verse 7, 8, and 9. So let's start in verse 7. And the first one is in verse 7a. We'll give you a little a. You won't find that ever in your scriptures if you're looking for it. But if there's a long verse, sometimes uh, scholars will divide it a, b, and c. And so that way you can kind of find your way around the verse. So we just have a and b this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So the nature of the law of God, it's called law. That tells us something of its characteristic, and it's called perfect. The word law here is Torah. The Jews call the first five books of the Old Testament the Torah. They called any scroll that they would hold the Torah. 
And later, Torah, or law, came to be known for all of God's revelation given to his people. And that's what it's referring to here. The, it's a term that's comprehensive for all of God's revelation to us. And notice, the law of God is perfect. Here it emphasizes the fact that it is complete. It is entire. It's lacking nothing. It's full. This Hebrew word means that the word of God is sufficient as a rule for faith and practice. The word of God is complete, giving us everything we need to know about God. Now, it doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. No book could contain that. No mind could comprehend it. But it does tell us everything we need to know about God. You don't need to go anywhere else. The Bible is sufficient, complete. It's perfect. And this complete Bible tells us how to live. Everything we need to know about how to live is here. Everything we need to know about how to relate with other people. Everything that's essential. Nothing was missed. Do you ever go on a trip, on a vacation, and you're two, five, 20 miles down the road, and you say, ah, I forgot something. I forgot my wife. Usually it's not that bad, but you usually forget something, right? And you're not complete. You don't have all you need to survive. And we do one of two things. Usually we get mad first. Some of us will turn the car around and go back. Some of us would never do that. Once you're two miles down the road, you're gone. You don't go back. And so you'll buy what you need or, or try to somehow get along. The Bible's not missing any essential that you need to live and to make your pilgrim journey to heaven. It's complete. It's entire. It's perfect. It's sufficient. And what will this do? What's the benefit? It will refresh or restore your soul. By the way, this is the same Hebrew word that David used in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Leads me in the paths of righteousness. He restores my soul. And this simply means imparting life to those who don't have it. Or perhaps you could translate it imparting life to those who had it and have lost it. Now, I don't mean you lose your salvation, but I mean that you and I need to be restored because we're like batteries that begin to lose their energy. And the life that we live is a life lived against a lot of difficulties and obstacles, persecution, opposition, our own sinful nature that we have to battle with as well as the enemies of God around us. And you begin to be, you begin to lose that energy, that excitement, that drive. And you need to be recharged. You need to be restored. How can you be restored? The Bible. You just take in the word of God. Often when people come to me for counseling, and so if you ever do, you'll know this will happen. They describe the problem in all of its ugly detail, and after they're done talking, I'll say, how's your Bible reading going? And I'll say, Pastor, that's not my problem. My problem is this, and they often go back over the whole thing, and I listen, and then when they're done, I'll say, well, how's your Bible reading going? And they often confess, well, I'm not reading the Bible. 
And then I say something like this. Don't you think that might be part of the problem? And I talk about all the benefits of the Bible that they are not receiving because they're not reading. Yeah. If you're not being restored, if you feel like life is draining you to, to, to your very bottom, if there's no energy and zeal and excitement, could it be that you've stopped reading the Bible or in your reading of the Bible, you're not excited, you don't take it in, you don't live it out? It restores my soul. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, which, by the way, is a great commentary on this psalm, 119 is a great commentary on 19. This is my comfort in affliction. Your word has revived me. The word of God. Uh, Notice the second thing in verse 7. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now the nature of the word here is described as statutes. And this particular Hebrew word literally means testimony or witness. The written word is a witness to the faithfulness of God. As I stated before, we have an old testimony and a new testimony or testament. That's what those words mean. It refers to the fact that God has given a witness to himself. And this witness in the statutes of God, in the law of God, is called trustworthy. That's the word that is used in NIV. The Hebrew word is, get this, Amen. Where we get our English word, amen. By the way, the Greek word is amen. And I think the French word is amen. And the Spanish word is like hallelujah. In any language, it's the same. What does it mean? It means true. That's true. That's trustworthy. That's reliable. That's right. I agree. The Bible is true. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. No other place to go to find truth. It's right here. The Bible is amen. In fact, Paul takes off on this in 1 Corinthians when he says all the promises of God in Christ are amen. They're yes. They're accurate. They're true. Peter said in 2 Peter, you know, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration and I saw Jesus glorified, but there's something more reliable than my testimony. It's the written word of God. Experience can be counterfeited. Experience can be misunderstood. It's the Bible that tests our experience, not experience informing the Bible. So we've got to go discover what God has said and then evaluate everything in the world around that. The testimony of the Lord is amen. And what will it do? Well, the benefit is it will give wisdom to the simple. Now, this word simple could mean naive, a person whose mind is like an open door. They just let everything in without discernment. Or it could mean uninformed, which I take it to mean. An uninformed person is not stupid or dumb. They're uninformed. They're ignorant because no one has taught them. They're not ignorant because they cannot know. And we're living in a world of ignorant 
people who are uninformed about the truth of Scripture. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame. That's why we need missionaries going into places who can speak the truth of God. And you will remain ignorant unless this book gives you wisdom. Wise, that speaks about the way to live life, the, the art of skillful, proper living. And the Bible gives us that instruction. Psalm 119 again. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. And I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. You could be going to the best university city under a man with multiple doctorates, but if that individual teacher does not regard the word of God as truth, you could have more insight into life and eternity and the way things really are by simply reading your Bible. The Bible gives wisdom. It makes us wise into salvation and dispels the darkness of naivete. Go to verse 8. The precepts, the commands of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Now notice when it uses a term for the scripture, sometimes they are interchangeable. Sometimes they're merely synonyms. If you take another translation, they'll use command in verse 8, where another translation will use command in verse 9. And you say, well, what is it? Well, these words are interchangeable, but there may be a slightly different shade of meaning or an additional concept in a particular word. But it just shows how full-orbed, how well-developed the Bible is. Here the word precept is used, or at least translated in the NIV, and it's a word that means mandate. It means non-negotiable. Uh, the way I, I kind of discern between precept and principle is this. A precept is like driving down the road and you see a sign that says 35 miles an hour, that's a precept. It's a non-negotiable. Now that doesn't mean you don't try to negotiate because all of us are convinced that our speedometers are off and they're always too slow. And so if it says 35, that means 40 or 45. But, the, but there's no negotiating with it. If the police officer stops you and you say, well, I was just going five miles over the speed limit, he can write you out a ticket. That's the law. That's the precept. That's the mandate. A principle is a sign that says drive safely. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's based on common sense, your education in driver's ed. It's based on road conditions, weather conditions. Drive carefully means use some common sense with all that you know that is right and true and apply it to that situation. Drive carefully. Different than a precept. And the Bible is filled with precepts and principles. By the way, if you're driving in Michigan and it says drive carefully, that means drive with agility. The ability to miss potholes is, I think, what it means. The Bible has principles, and the Bible has precepts. Thus saith the Lord, that's a precept. By the way, the Jews had all kinds of regulations in their life, didn't they? Read the book of Leviticus. They had laws for eating and laws for drinking and laws for dressing and laws for sleeping. I can just hear Tevia speaking in Fiddler on the Roof. We've got laws for this, and we've got laws for that, and they always have. And that's what these are, the statutes. And they are right, the scripture says. That means they're straight on, spot on. 
They're upright. There's no crookedness in them. There's no deviation. They're true. They're accurate. They're just. They're fair. And no, you know what the, the precepts of, of the Lord that are right do for us? They bring joy to the heart. Again, I ask you, if joy is not a dominant characteristic of your life, could it be that the word of God is not your daily fare? Because joy is the outcome of taking this book in, thinking it through, living it out. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I did eat them and your word became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart because I'm called by your name, O Lord of hosts. If you're called by the name of the Lord of hosts, then make his word your food. There's an interesting historical figure in Africa. His name is Menelik II. He was born in 1844. He was imprisoned by a neighboring tribe for a while and then broke out and got some clans together and formed an army and began to kind of defeat the people around him and founded a country in Africa called Ethiopia. He is still recognized as one of their great heroes. He brought in good laws and railroads and progress, community. He's revered as a leader in many places in that country. Kind of the founder of modern Ethiopia. But he was a bit eccentric. He had this little, little flaw in his character. Whenever he got sick, he would ask for a copy of the Bible and they would bring him an Egyptian copy of the scriptures and he would rip it and eat it literally eat it and digest it. And he said, every time he did that, he got better. <laughs> well, one time he had a stroke, and he was very, very sick, and he called his attendants to bring the Bible, and they brought it to him. And this is a true story. He literally ate all of the book of Kings and digested it and died. <laughs> and now, maybe he took... Jeremiah 15, you know, thy words were found and I did eat them. And with, without the common sense to be able to think about figures of speech, he thought that he ought to literally do that. No, the Bible is a book that we take in figuratively like you would eat food. And when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, that doesn't mean he's a literal loaf of bread, but we feed on him, on his teaching, on his truth. Jesus is my daily fare. He is my bread and meat and drink. And I find him in the precious word of God. And joy is the result. Well, notice in the last half of verse 8, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Here the word command, much like the statutes or the ordinances, much like the mandates or the precepts, but yet... Here it has the idea of something appointed by a lawgiver. Creation tells us there's a creator. A wonderful law tells us there's a lawgiver. There's mind and wisdom behind it. And God is the lawgiver. He's the one who's given us these wonderful words and appointed that we live our lives accordingly. And notice the word of God is radiant. It means pure and lucid. It shines. The word of God glows. It's truth. Emanates life and light. 
It's a source of enlightenment. And that's what the benefit is. It gives light, enlightenment. You're able to see things as they really are because the light of God's word has been turned on in your soul. Theologians like to talk about the perspicuity of the scripture. That means that it is lucid. It is clear. You can understand it. Peter said of the writings of Paul, there are some things that are hard to understand, but that implies that there are many things that are easy to understand. And I think, I think Jerome was right, a translator of the Bible from the 4th century, who made that famous statement, the word of God is shallow enough for a babe to come and drink from it without fear of drowning, yet deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching bottom. Have you noticed when you study the Word of God, it gets deeper? When you learn it, it seems just to expand? That when you draw from its source to be refreshed, the source is replied and never depleted? It grows with you and beyond you? The Bible's alive. And it's a source of light. We sang a moment ago, Thy word is a lamp to my feet. That's from Psalm 119. The unfolding of your words gives light. That's Psalm 119, 130. If you want to be enlightened, you need the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. And you need the wisdom of God to filter through all the voices that are speaking today of so-called wisdom. Look at verse 9. The fifth characteristic is the fear of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. The Bible is called the law of God, the commands of God, the statutes, the precepts, the ordinances, and now it's called the fear of the Lord. I love that name for the Bible. How many, brought, how many of you brought today a copy of the fear of the Lord? <laughs> We don't say that, but that's legitimate. And why is it called the fear of the Lord? Because that's the grand object of all revelation. Creation is given to us, and we're able to see it and understand some of it so that we might fear God. The word of God is given so that we might learn it and have awesome respect, reverential awe, and bow before the God who is God. The fear of the Lord is pure. Absent of any defect. No blemish in the Bible. It is infallible. We have a reliable portion of Scripture, translation of Scripture. The Bible never changes. And we have an opportunity to take in the truth of God's word and count on it being totally accurate, building our lives upon it. And the result is, it endures forever. Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Now, we, knew, need, we need new translations of the Bible. I really do believe we do need contemporary translations of the Bible because language changes. The word doesn't change, but language does. You ever tried to read Old English? That's the way the Bible was first translated by Wycliffe. And you can't read it. And then the King James translation came along and gave us the Bible in beautiful Elizabethan English. 
which it's very difficult to understand today. And so we need new translations because language changes, but the Bible doesn't. It is forever settled in heaven, and it has to be that way. The Bible is the word of God. It's pure, without blemish. It would be horrible to say that the Bible isn't the word of God. That's liberalism. Or neo-orthodoxy says the Bible contains the word of God. Postmodernism might even give a nod to the same belief. But you can see how that is fraught with problems. If the Bible only contains the word of God, who decides what is and what isn't? If the church does, they've got power over you. If you decide, who are you? And every man does that which is right in his own eyes. No, the Bible is the word of God from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and we must submit to it. It does not submit to us. It is the fear of God. And lastly, the decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. This word, decree, means a verdict that a judge has passed down. It's a divine conclusion, and it is settled. It is firm. It is sure. And the life that lives according to this truth will be altogether righteous. That is, there is a wholesome righteousness. There is a comprehensive holiness that develops in the life, in thought, in word, in action. It makes you righteous. It causes you to walk in the paths of righteousness because it is a holy book. Now, David says in summary, verse 10, these wonderful things, the Bible that is the law of God and the ordinances and the fear of the Lord and the decrees and the precepts, that is right and true and gives light and imparts life and lasts forever, that has all these benefits of giving to us joy, making us holy. This book is more precious than gold. It's more to be desired than even the finest of gold, and it's sweeter to the taste than honey dripping from the comb. I believe if David wrote today, he'd probably find a new dessert to use instead of honey. I suppose, you know, some of you might like honey and you want just to take a spoonful of it. I remember my grandfather used to do it and freak me out, but he would do that with honey on a regular basis. It'd be something sweet, though, something that makes, tops off the whole meal, something that might make a bland diet exciting. That's the word of God. And it's more precious than gold. You can determine your love for God based on your passion for the word and how you evaluate it. If you're act, always going after the things of this world, monetary things, you've got gold in your sights. The word of God is more valuable than that. Did you know statistics tell us that about 90% of Americans have a copy of the Bible and 75% believe it is the word of God, 17% read it daily? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Does it? 
If it is the word of God, I need to be taking it in. I need to have passion for it. I value it as the most important thing in my life. And nothing will stop me from getting its sweetness. There was a new Christian who was involved in a horrible accident. It was an explosion of some kind at his home or at work. I don't know what it was, but it disfigured his face. His face was greatly burned. He lost his eyesight and lost use of his two hands. They had to amputate both hands. And after he recovered a little bit and it was clear that he was going to live, he said his greatest regret was that he couldn't read the Bible anymore. Couldn't feel it with Braille. Couldn't see it without eyesight. And then he heard of a woman who read a Braille Bible with her lips. And so he got his copy of the Braille Bible and he started trying to read the Bible, but his lips had also been burned and he had no sensitivity And yet in that attempt, by accident, his tongue touched the raised figures. And he realized he could read the Bible with his tongue. When that article was written, he had read the Bible through four times in its entirety with his tongue. And you say you don't have enough time? Oh, it's passion, isn't it? It's our lack of desire. It's our lack of valuing. And that's why this psalm is so key. If we take this truth into our life, we're going to change the way we take in the Bible because it is life and it is sweet. Look at verse 11. It has warning and it has reward. They're both there. And so I'm going to take the Bible in so that I will be transformed. It should be your greatest possession. It's better than gold. Your greatest pleasure. It's sweeter than honey. Your greatest protection because it keeps you from all the warnings, the the consequences of the warnings, and it's your greatest profit, great reward. Patrick Henry said near his death, that great, wonderful patriot, Henry said, here is a book called The Bible, worth more than all others that have ever been printed, yet it is my misfortune never to have found time to read it. And he died. If this is God's word, give it everything you've got. And if it isn't, Lewis Evans, pastor of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Southern California years ago, was preaching a sermon It was said that he had most of the Bible memorized. He was preaching a sermon on the virgin birth. He said, now, if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, this was after he introduced his subject and preached for a few minutes, he paused and said, if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, then I think you ought to rip that section out of your Bible and throw it away. And with that, he ripped pages out of his Bible and threw them over the pulpit. And they fluttered to the floor. And the congregation was aghast. But he didn't stop there. He said, if you don't believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead, find that section in your Bible. Rip that out. And he ripped more pages and threw them over. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then rip that out of your Bible. And he ripped some more pages. And that added to the pile. The congregation sat there, stunned beyond words. There was not much left in his Bible when he got done. And he said, all you've got left is a sermon on the mount. And that doesn't mean anything if Christ is not divine. And he threw his Bible over the pulpit and said, let's pronounce a benediction. 
I really wanted to try that this morning. <laughs> but I couldn't rip up a Bible. I thought I'd put some fake pages in here and just rip them out and see if I could get a rise. But before he started praying, someone in the congregation stood up and said, Pastor, no, no, give us the word. We need the word. And he said, okay. He went down and collected the pages and got his Bible, went back to the pulpit and preached for 50 minutes on the virgin birth. Because this is the word of God. Martin Luther said, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, naught else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. Heavenly Father, give us a love for this book like those who believe it's your word. In Jesus' name, amen.